You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com, alongside, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Well, Ben, it is Columbus Day. Huh, is it? It is also Matt Hughes' birthday. Coincidence. So, a dark day all the way around. Yeah. And we are here for episode, I think, 124. Who counts anymore, Just man? depressing, right? Yeah. Um, Cold Fury? Is that what we nicknamed this right. one? Uh, Co-Main Event Podcast 124, Cold Fury. Uh, we're going to do all questions considered this week because we're kind of in between UFC events. We had a Bellator event and a World Series of Fighting event this past weekend. But when we get a little break like this, sometimes we like to do uh, all question considered episodes, which are uh, basically just brought to us by the listeners. Fucking free for all is what they are. When's was, the last time we did one of these? It's been a while, right? It's been a while, which is probably a testament to the mixed martial arts live event schedule more than anything else. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, no, we just do listener mail for the full hour and change. Just turn it over to you. The listener. To then give us an opportunity to talk. That's right. Uh, do, do you have anything we want to say? Do we have any news or notes, or should we just get started? Well, first of all, I'd like to say thanks to all the, the outpouring of uh, support and, and questions, thoughtful questions from our we listeners. Did, we did get good questions this week. I also wanted to throw a quick plug out there to Reddit MMA, which I recently joined. Have you have you checked out the, the MMA subreddit? I'm familiar with what it is, but I, I'm not. Do I have to be a member or something like that? You don't that? have to do be have a to member. sign up for I something? mean, to like comment and stuff, then you do have to be a member. Okay. Uh, but... I've added it to my MMA bookmarks, my little MMA folder on my browser, and uh, I love the hell out of that, man. Not only does the CME podcast get good support on there, but uh, you know, there's just wacky shit on there, like uh, a video of the raw audio and like ring level video of the Ricardo Arona Rampage Jackson fight, which I sent to you. Oh yeah, that's where you found that. Huh? That's right. Huh. They have just awesome shit like that, which makes me wonder, like, man, why haven't I seen this before? But then that one was particularly awesome because you could hear. The frustration in the voices of Rampage's cornermen uh, just before he does the the triangle choke power bomb slam that knocks Ricardo Rona out, and they just sound like they are so close to just saying, "That's it. I've had it with Rampage. I'm not dealing with him anymore." And then he gets that knockout, and suddenly it's, "Whoa! We did it, man! We did it!" Little did they know that his career was about to be launched, not for the first or the last time. I'm just saying the frustration you can hear in their voices. That is not one night's worth of frustration that's a training <laughs> camp right there uh well let's get started with this it's all listener mail all the time this week if you have a question a comment or a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks you know how to get a hold of us you can go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast as for right now though we're going to get started i'm going to start and then we'll just switch off does okay, that sound okay let's do that First listener mail this week comes from David Golden. He writes, I was relaxing at home last night watching Friday's Bellator card. I turned on this card expecting to see Joe Warren get completely destroyed by Eduardo Dantes. However, that was not what I saw. Instead, I watched Joe Warren hold the fence, hold the gloves, poke the eyes, and kick the head of his downed opponent on his way to a championship win. Joe Warren really took it to the limit in this one with little regard for Big John McCarthy's verbal warnings. While I was impressed with Warren's performance overall, good takedowns and such, 
I am left feeling hoodwinked. How do you guys feel about it? Not hoodwinked. Did you watch this live? Because I watched this on DVR. I watched it. Uh, I went back and found it afterwards. I, I did not watch it live. I also, but, but I knew something was up because I woke up in the morning to a bunch of people tweeting us about Joe Warren's display of Dendasso. Right. How do you feel, Jad, that you've become the guy now when somebody cheats their ass off in an MMA fight? People are like, oh, man, this is exactly what Chad Dennis is talking about. Yeah. So I got That's really, your legacy. I got really hyped about it before I watched it. And like... Uh, aside from the kick to the downed opponent, which I think we can talk about in its own right, I was kind of disappointed um, by the the cheating in this fight because uh, I thought it was almost all incidental and like didn't really like if, like if you just went off the Twitter response, you would think that this was like the crime that Joe Warren committed the crime of the century while in the cage, yeah. and I just didn't really see that. There, but there were, was a lot of variety. There was a lot of variety, and frankly, as far as cage grab goes, I thought Eduardo Dantes did the majority of that. Uh, Warren grabbed the gloves a few times. Uh, I was a little bit underwhelmed by all of that cheating, but then you get to the main event moment, the kick to the downed opponent, uh, which is really something. like that. I, I don't see how you get away with that without having a point taken away from you because it just seemed so intentional uh and then i guess you got to get it up give it up to the baddest man on the planet joe warren for uh sticking to his guns per se for coming up with a story and sticking to it as he as uh you know he got lectured by big john mccarthy there but uh Aside from that, I thought, you know, this was just mostly like incidental uh, grab assing that happens in MMA fights. <laughs> and let me say this. My DVR cut off with a minute to go in the final round uh, because I forgot to extend it. Um, and so I didn't see the last minute of the fight. Uh, people were saying something weird happened with, with Dantas's trunks. And uh, I didn't really see that. Well, he, he, I think that this this one in particular made me wonder, like, okay, we have to acknowledge at this point, right, that fighters of all stripes, they realize what the situation is with the MMA rules, right? As, as they should, right? Yeah, like they, and it's the kind of thing where I don't know if, if it's necessarily like a conscious thing where they're thinking beforehand, like, all right, here are some ways that I might get an opportunity to, to cheat and get away with it in this upcoming fight, or if it's just a kind of thing where you notice it mid-fight, like, hey, nothing's really being punished, so let's keep pushing it. I wonder if it creates this thing, though, where like when we do see a foul punished, like somebody loses a point for like a low blow or something. And we saw it recently in one of those UFC events a, a few weeks ago where there were a couple low blows and the referee did the thing where he told him like, I'm going to start taking points away. And then he took a point away right then. And the guys was like, wait a minute, I thought you meant next time. And it's this thing where it creates like this sense of like outrage when the rules actually are enforced like right. guys can't believe it like there's an, a, a sense of entitlement like they're supposed to be able to cheat once or twice yeah right? <laughs> yes and so i mean that's the i think the real problem is that nobody knows where it ends like nobody knows like okay where's the line because everybody's trying to push it a little bit and so the line keeps getting pushed further and further further and then uh, you know eventually the referees start to feel a little bit of shame and are just like okay i gotta do something here and then people are like wait a minute i've seen far worse cheating i have partaken in far worse cheating than that why am I being punished now? Right. It's like they're like, you know, fifth graders who are like a teacher has let him get away with too much. And then he's going to start trying to enforce the rules because, damn it, he's had it. And it's Tuesday and he can't do this shit anymore. Uh, and then the kids get all indignant. That seems like what happens. 
Uh, well, in the end, though, a good win for Joe Warren. Now you're undisputed Bellator bantamweight champion. He has won five fights in a row, uh, which is a pretty big turnaround from back in 2011, 2012, where he lost a couple fights in a row, uh, including he he lost the featherweight uh, championship to Pat Curran. Uh, and it kind of seemed like Joe Warren was going to be done. Yeah, it did uh, seem like, and, and like and, it seemed like he should be done the way and, he was getting. No, and now at at 38 years old, he's kind of managed to put it back together. So. Uh, Good on him, I suppose. Going out there and putting his hands on him. That's what he's doing. Uh, all right. Well, my first question here comes from Mark Featherstone, who says, I thought I'd do Ben a solid this week and give him a chance to bring up the inevitable trading shots column plug. That's kind of you, Mark. Do you both fully believe that Ryan Ford did, in fact, do the damn thing against Jake Shields with a broken arm? I'm unsure where I stand at the moment, but I'm sure I'll have a firm stance after you guys discuss the shit out of it. Now, what he's referring to, in case you missed it, World Series of Fighting 14 uh, up in Canada on Saturday night. The main event, Jake Shields, his first fight since being cut from the UFC, takes on Ryan Ford. Uh, and you know, Ford had a moment there early in the fight. Yeah. Landed a pretty stiff left, uh, if I remember correctly. Was it, yeah, left jab, dropped Yeah. Him. Although Jake Shields later said he just kind of tripped. But Yeah, but I mean, he his legs were a little wobbly after that one. Uh, but anyway, Shields eventually gets it to the mat, takes his bat, chokes him out toward the end of the first round. Looks like a good win for Shields. But then, da da da, Ryan Ford comes out with this video that he claims was shot on October 2nd. Uh, of him like at the doctors getting treated for a broken arm and explaining basically I'm going to go through with it anyway because I kind of have to because that's how I get paid. Uh, but clearly kind of making this video like doing the equivalent of like holding up the newspaper and the right. hostage. Like a time capsule. Like <laughs> yes, he made like a time a, capsule. Like a time capsule. So people wouldn't say he was just like coming up with an excuse after the fact. And as excuses go, broken arm is, is a pretty good one. I felt really conflicted on this one. I mean, I don't doubt... You know, Mark Brotherstone asks if we if we buy, if we buy it that he had a broken arm. I don't doubt that he had the broken arm. Yeah, he must have had it. the The question though is like how we're supposed to feel about right, it, right? Yeah, um, and I'm conflicted. My conflictedness stems from the idea that like this is how these guys get paid, right? And you don't get paid if you don't fight. So if you if you're Ryan Ford and you're probably depending on this income to live on, uh, then you have to go out there and fight with a broken arm or or po- postpone the fight and just don't get paid for a while longer. Because I think we can all agree that that situation totally sucks for anyone and would suck. Uh, but I'm what would they would most likely do if he pulled out. 10 days before with a broken arm, right? Is try to scramble and find Jake Shields, somebody else. Right. But all in the, all the same, Ryan Ford wouldn't get paid. Right. Uh, so that sucks. But like, I am conflicted in that I have long felt that like, if you go out there and fight that you should not later come up with an injury excuse because, um, for, for a while there it was really just, uh, uh, endemic. Like it was, it was just mm-hmm. like every time somebody lost, it would turn out that they had a 103 degree fever or whatever Crack skull. coming That's into my the, favorite. coming into the fight. So, uh, a long, long ago, I pioneered the slogan, uh, you know, uh, if, if you get hurt, don't fight. And if you fight, don't bitch. Good slogan. Uh, when are those t-shirts coming in, by the way? Anytime now, yeah. anytime now. Cause and, I feel like I paid like upfront for one and it's been a while. I still hold on to that slogan. I still sort of believe that. Although, uh, the more we learn about the sport and, you know, the more knowledge we gain and, and we do get confronted with the reality that if a dude doesn't fight, he doesn't get paid. That does make you feel bad for him. But at the same time, and it kind of sucks to say this, but I feel like if you go out there and fight, you just got to kind of keep the injury to yourself or you let somebody else talk about it for you in another interview down the road. Yeah. You let one of your teammates be like, I look I don't know. I probably shouldn't say this. Ryan probably wouldn't like it that I'm telling you. Right. This, exactly. Damn it. I yeah. got to. I got to tell you something, man. He had a broken arm going into that. One. You know, but 
Danny and I were talking about it a little bit, and I, I had kind of the same feeling that you did, that I felt that way for a long time, because everybody will want to talk about, oh, I hurt my back a couple weeks out from this one and couldn't really train that well, and it's just kind of like, man, not the time, this is this is not the time for that, and this is not really useful for you, it kind of just makes you look like a, like a sore loser, and this was one where I did feel like I... Th- like he was, you know, there's a little bit of him preparing the excuse, laying the groundwork for the excuse. Again, good excuse, broken arms, good reason to lose a fight. Um, but it also seemed like he was genuinely trying to tell us something about the way fighters live. And when you start thinking about it from the from his perspective, all right, you get this main event shot with, with Jake Shields. You don't want to let everybody down pulling out of the fight, all that stuff. And you got to get money. Otherwise, if you pull out 10 days from the fight... All this training camp and everything, whatever it's money tough, you... It's a tough spot, man, yeah. legitimately. Whatever money you sunk into the training camp is gone, you know, and you just kind of have to take the loss, and, and, and it sucks. But at the same time, it's like, think about the, the effect of this. For one thing, the fans who went out there excited about this main event, and then later they find out, wait a minute, you knew you had a broken arm and probably weren't going to be worth a damn, you went in there with one arm, and man, I kind of feel... Like, maybe I didn't get my full money's worth out of that. Plus, for Jake Shields, he gets this good win, first-round submission, he's back to finishing people, but then afterwards people are like, oh, well, well, of course he's submitted the dude. He fought a guy with one arm. Like, it just sucks all the way around. Yeah, it does. I just, I, it's a tough spot, but again, like, when you, if you fight, I kind of think that, like, you shouldn't fall back on the, the injury excuse. I just think that uh, we Unless you're sh- Chuck Liddell and it means they're going to put you straight back into a light heavyweight title shot. Anyway, <laughs> though, uh, the next question comes from Andrew Millington, which reads, do you think Jake Shields is being clever targeting John Fitch as opposed to Rusmar Palharas? I feel there's some gamesmanship going on that I wouldn't normally associate with Jake, parenthetically fighting a former training partner, generally a no-no for Caesars guys. Maybe uh, take, Wait. he means Caesar Gracie, not not like a Roman Caesar. Okay. But John Fitch was a Caesar Gracie guy? No, but they're, like they're uh, like well, f- they are friends though, right? Like this was the thing. Fitch is is from AK or was from AK. He's since moved on, right? Yeah, I think uh, so. And Shields is a is a Caesar Gracie guy. Uh, they have some relationship, but I saw on the internet's uh, Shields jumped on the mic and instead of calling out Rusmar Paul Harris, he calls out John Fitch. Uh, and so Andrew Millington writes, maybe he's taking out maybe taking out one of the other misfit toys would put him back in Joe Silva's contact list. <laughs> Worked out all right for Josh Berkman. Uh, I don't know if that is going on, but I, I did kind of feel like maybe Jake Shields considers a fight against John Fitch to be a bigger deal than a fight against Rusmar Paul Harris. I would feel like the exact opposite, just from where I sit on it. I mean, don't you think that a because Rusmar Paul Harris got cut because he wouldn't let go of motherfuckers' limbs yeah. when they tapped. He he got cut because he was too dangerous. Yes, yeah. I think we've yes. discussed on this show before. Yeah, yeah, he didn't get cut for losing fights. I mean. He got cut for for winning them and not realizing in time that he had won them. So I, I feel like that's the more impressive win if you go out there and beat Paul Harris. Yeah, and I, I Paul Harris has kind of cooled off though. I feel like, uh, you know, when he first he first came over to World Series of Fighting, like you were saying, uh, it felt like. And I think I wrote about this on Bleacher Report at the time, but like it felt like he was actually going to have kind of a. Uh, 
a good marketing strategy, right? Because he was going to be this guy who was too dangerous for the UFC and also a dude that like you wanted to watch fight when he went out there because uh you didn't know what he was going to do. Yeah. And chances were he was going to do something crazy. Top then, 10 reasons you want to watch who smart Paul Harris fight on Bleach Report. And, by then, Chad and then he comes out, you know, stop it. I don't make fun of your <laughs> plugs when you talk about you and Danny Downs doing your little Q&A. Yes, you do. Uh He comes out, he beats Steve Carl in March in like a minute and 10 seconds seconds or something like that and at the time and they then immediately after that they tried to set up paul harris and fitch right yeah and, I, and but his mother's leg thrombosis got right. in the way and when right when that happened i was like wow that's like that's kind of a must-see fight for world series of fighting and in fact maybe their first ever must-see fight because you've got john fitch a well-respected welterweight guy going up against paul harris who like has effectively positioned himself as a monster of sorts like this guy that is is crazy and is going to try to tear up your knee and hold the sus- uh, submission for way too long but i feel like all that kind of cooled off because because of the thrombosis because we haven't seen Damn Paul Harris in so long. And so I don't know. Maybe Jake Shields at this point feels like John Fitch is a is the higher profile opponent. Or the more winnable fight. That that, that could also be. Otherwise, I don't know uh, why he would do that. just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I did a little video uh, about it this weekend, but I thought... See, here you are, plugging I, your video and well, me not saying a damn thing. I thought it was... Inter- I mean, the Sit video isn't along. even on the website yet, so I don't know if this counts as a plug, but... Uh, I mean, we have to look at the welterweight division over there in World Series of Fighting and acknowledge, like, the three guys right there in the conversation for the title are all UFC cast-offs. Like, that's basically what's happened there. And no coincidence that that seems to be, like, their most interesting division that they've got. I mean, that tells us something. Yeah. Yeah, it does. What do you got over there? All right, I got one from Matt from Texas, who says, The S&P downgraded the UFC's credit rating recently on the basis of their largely underwhelming year. I haven't heard numbers yet, but the buzz for UFC 178 seems to bode well for its performance, and I think this can't be all laying at the feet of the notorious one. A lot of my more casual fan friends were pumped about that card from bottom to nearly the top. Do you guys think the timing of this S&P thing coming so soon on the heels of 178 will finally help the UFC realize that stretching themselves too thin is a thing, or are we already too far gone? This seemed like big news to me when I saw it float across the Twitter wire. Uh, And I have not really seen it picked up in a high-profile way by... uh, you know, it hasn't prompted as much discussion as I thought it would. And maybe that's because we don't know what it means. Yeah, we don't understand like None of us are business this. people. Yeah. But like when I first saw the uh, the report, I could have sworn it said that uh, S&P said that the UFC's earning before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization was going to be down 30 percent this year. And that's basically means like their cash flow, like their cash on hand, which is not necessarily a surprise because we all know the pay-per-view numbers are down while at the same time spending is going way up. And even though they get this like incredible influx of cash from Fox now, uh, that's not a, that's not a huge surprise that maybe their, their cash flow would be down, but also like, dude, that seems bad if indeed it is 30%, right? Well, I was looking at the uh, – Dave Meltzer had a thing on MMA fighting today, uh, and he was talking about you know, s- some of that stuff like the that the, the pay-per-view revenue might be accounting for less of it, but they're also looking at what their TV rights deals are. And that's really what the USC has been telling us, right, is that like, hey, 
you think that these cards are shitty and not worth paying for or whatever, or not worth watching on Fight Pass, what you don't realize is that we're making money this way. Like, we're making more money by getting them on TV and, and you know, going to Macau and all this kind of stuff. Um, and basically, it seemed like they were being a little too honest for their own good when they were talking that way. Like, hey, yeah, we understand. It's a slightly more mediocre product than what we used to offer. But it's more profitable for us, so therefore you should all support us. And uh, maybe not realizing that the fans are not members of their board of directors, so don't really see it the same way. I, I mean, to me, I think that uh, I, one of the things that I noticed in that S&P thing were them saying that, well, we expect it'll rebound next year when some key fighters come back from injuries and maybe pay-per-view revenues pick up and, and things like that. Uh, and they also mentioned when ticket prices increase, uh, that they think basically pay-per-views will get stronger if people can stay healthy and some of the key guys are back in the mix. Uh, and maybe the UFC will just raise some of their prices uh, to make up for some of that stuff. You know, I, I, to me, the, the thing that uh, it always seems like we we all see the death of pay-per-view in its current form somewhere in the future, right? Like we all re realize that TV and the way people watch that kind of stuff seems to be changing. Uh, and the only question is how fast it'll change and what it'll look like when we finally get to something else. And in that sense, it seems like with stuff like Fight Pass, the UFC is actually positioned pretty well to, to move on that. But it still seems like nobody is sure exactly what that future world of TV viewing is going to look like. And that creates a lot of uncertainty for somebody who relies on these big, big pay-per-view cash dumps. Yeah, I think that this most recent report just creates a lot of uncertainty because you can talk about how the pay-per-view market is going to go back up when you get a couple of quote-unquote key stars back. but And I assume when you say that, you mean George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva, who were your two biggest pay-per-view draws that you lost uh, at almost exactly the same time and, and have been out since then. Even if you get those two dudes back, they're not going to be around for that much longer. Like, those guys are going to be on borrowed time no matter... Uh, you know, when they come back, especially Anderson Silva, obviously George St. Pierre is a little bit younger, but he's the guy who has already walked away once. And even if he comes back and, and you know, fights for the welterweight title again, you got to assume that he is not going to be around for the long haul. So unless you like uh, can replace those those guys with new stars, I think you're still looking at a future that is somewhat less than your past. Uh and that to me is 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 scary and weird and and kind of makes me think that I wouldn't be totally surprised if we wake up one day and this thing's been sold. You know what I mean? Like uh I don't think we're in those kind of dire straits yet, but like this report is bad. Real bad. Well, the question at the end here does is this the kind of thing that helps uh the UFC realize that stretching themselves too thin is is actually a problem or are they past that point? To me, I mean I, I look at the the current ownership and it doesn't they don't have the mentality of people who are uh, reassessing their decisions to see if maybe they made a mistake somewhere along the way. They have and the well, mentality they're and they're never going to admit that publicly ever. Well, I mean, I think we would be able to see it if they started to scale right. back. Yeah, it would be obvious, but like they would that. never admit it. And it doesn't look like we're going in that direction. I mean, it, it seems to like the UFC has just kind of realized that you know this is the way to to make money is just to keep keep ramping it up, keep going to different places, turn it into basically a volume business. I don't see them looking at something like this and being like, you know what, maybe we should pull back a little bit and, and reevaluate. I just right. I just can't see them doing that. 
It's and I also I don't even know if they could, man. I don't like I don't I don't know how you would uh, scale back when you've promised Fox a certain number of cards when you have to do a certain number of pay per views because that does indeed create a lot of your revenue. And now that you have Fight Pass, you got to do shows for that. So like this thing is a battleship at this point, and you have fully turned it. And it is going to take a while to turn back to your original course if indeed that is what you wanted to do. Uh, Battleship, huh? I mean, it's, yeah, it's just okay. like, you, you got a big fucking bureaucracy on your hands at this point, even if it does, in fact, run at the whims of one dude like this. They're involved in some stuff that would be hard to backtrack on at this point. I see. I'm just trying to make trying to envision the battleship right now. It's kind of it's kind of a zany analogy. I like it, though. Zany. That's like a, a well-known analysis an analogy. I mean, I'm just picturing. I mean, I think that the actual analogy is aircraft carrier. Yeah, like it's an aircraft carrier, but or like a like an oil picture. tanker. It's the same thing, man. Huh. <laughs> I thought a battleship was a little more maneuverable. We'll discuss it later. We'll discuss this one off air. All right. Next question comes from Rob L. He writes, last week, I watched the premiere of Kingdom, a new TV show that is set in the world of MMA. I found the show to be generally entertaining and look forward to watching future episodes to see where the characters and stories go. Most interestingly, though, was that I felt as though the depiction of the MMA world was fairly accurate and realistic even going as far as mentioning brand names like the UFC and real-life personalities like Greg Jackson. Watching this, though, got me thinking about other fictional works set in the world of mixed martial arts. I realize that there haven't been a ton, but was curious as to what are your favorite fictionalized portrayals of MMA, what they are, and why. Did you watch this? Did you watch Kingdom? No, it's on, like, DirecTV, right? Yeah, but they put that first episode on for free on, on Facebook. Oh, really? Yeah, I watched it. It's pretty good. I did not see that. I liked it. Thanks and, for sending me a link. I appreciate that. I assumed you would be on top of it. Rob L. is right. Like, it seemed like it. it's pretty good, and there's a uh, legitimate uh, pop LOL moment where they do, in fact, name-check Greg Jackson uh, at one point, which is awesome, plus a speaking role for noted MMA referee Mike Beltran. Oh, uh, no, man. Which is which really? is awesome. Uh, Nick, do you know one of the Jonas Brothers is in it? Nick Jonas does a surprisingly good job portraying like a young up-and-coming MMA fighter. Beats I'm, up Cubs. Well, spoiler alert, beats up Cubs Swanson in the first episode. I know that, that Nick Jonas is a famous person, but I really don't know who that is. Uh, and... This, it's good. I thought it seemed good. Like some of like they certainly aren't breaking any new ground in, in like terms of storytelling. You've got some pretty well worn uh, uh, paths being being walked down in terms of plotting. But like this is good, and like it seems like it's gonna be good. We can't watch it obviously because it's on Directv, and both of us have Dish Network. But I think Rob L brings up a valid point, and that is that Kingdom is poised to be the best thing ever done about MMA because all of the previous stuff done about MMA has been kind of shitty. Like, the best movie was probably Warrior. Yeah, right? I was just going to bring up Warrior, because that one was one where I went into that with extremely low expectations, just because of what we've seen before. Um, looking at you, Never Back Down. Uh, I remember actually when I was working for the IFL, and they made me interview one of the actors from Never Back Down, while he was riding in a limo to one of the Elite XC events in like Miami, and uh, it seemed like he'd probably had a little bit to drink. Uh, because when he recounted, like I had seen an early screener of Never Back Down, and then when he recounted the plot of Never Back Down uh, very quickly to me, I was like, "No, that's not really what happens." <laughs> like I just I saw it. that's not you're you're incorrect, sir. Um, but yeah, Warrior, I was actually pleasantly surprised with a little bit. It did the rare. Oh, I thought it was bad. Oh, I mean, I mean, Tom Hardy's in it, and Tom Hardy's awesome. Tom Hardy is awesome, and Nick Nolte, Nick Nolte, the shit out of he it. He does his the best, maybe the neck, the best Nick Nolte impression ever done by Nick Nolte <laughs> in that movie. It did the thing which I think is is hard to do in a sports movie, um, where with the climactic fight scene, 
I didn't know which way it was going to go, and I didn't know which way I even wanted to see it go. Uh, I think that in itself is an accomplishment for a, a piece of sports-related fiction. Um, but then, spoiler alert, the one brother gets the other brother, Tom Hardy, in a rear naked choke at the end of the movie. Uh-huh. And in the cage, he's like whispering, I'm sorry, in his ear as he chokes him out. Right? Well, a national song is playing. Yes. That sucks. That was lame. That part was lame. <laughs> you have no heart. That's your problem. Uh, ready to move on from this one? Or do you have anything? Else? Do we? Can we Aside befriend from- somebody with DirecTV? Who do we know that we can pretend to be friends with them? Uh, we can come over and watch it. Hey know. man, we have, we we gotta reconnect. We were thinking Tuesdays at eight <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> yeah, I, let's go for it. Let's put the put the word out. Let's cast a wide net. Okay. Um, okay. Here's one from Perry from Saskatoon, which is fun to say. It's hard to miss the fact that you guys are struggling with some of MMA's shortcomings, just like its fans: underpay, long-term health issues for fighters, PED use, sensitivity to the media, canceled fights, and fighters doing terrible things outside the ring. Have all been recent discussion items on the show. That doesn't even count all of the items under the heading of promotional malfeasance, such as undeserved title shots, too many cards that are far too thin, the ridiculous launch of fight pass, the daily head scratcher from Dana White, last month's flavor of the week being thrown under the bus, and inconsistent application of policies. If they actually exist. Wow. Can the sport survive the people running it and participating in it? That was a pretty big and good takedown right yeah, there. Yeah, that was... Who wrote this? That was Perry from Saskatoon. Perry from Saskatoon pretty much covered it. Yeah. Good public schooling up there in Saskatoon, I assume. <laughs> uh, you know, this was actually something I was I was thinking about when you were talking about the prospect of uh, the UFC selling. Just wake up one day and suddenly it's sold. <laughs> Suddenly Viacom are your new corporate overlords. I imagine you stumbling out here in your bathrobe at 10 a.m., at the crack of 10 a.m., hearing that the UFC has been sold and your jaw just dropping open. My my coffee just drops out of my hand, shatters (laughs) on the... We see it in dramatic slow motion falls. It soundlessly breaks on the floor. Uh, It made me wonder if, like, maybe that is not such a terrible, like, next evolution for the sport. If, if the UFC owners were to sell it to somebody else who had been assessing the business from the outside with maybe a, a cold, calculating stare and not emotionally attached to, like, proving that the decisions they had already made were the right decisions? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think that that's the most, I don't want to say likely outcome because this thing could really go any any which way. But, I mean, it, it you know, we need to point out that the Fertitas have never said that they wouldn't sell the thing. Every time somebody asks them, they always say, if somebody made us a great offer, we would sell it. Uh, I think, you think we should get a Kickstarter together. Yeah, we should see if we can put together some investors. Okay. Mark Cuban, you got him in your phone, right? Yeah, Give I got him a call. I got let's see, forty two dollars. Uh, so that's that's what I'm willing to put down. I mean, I think that we uh, we're not going too far out on a limb to say business is in decline at the moment, and whoever however long that lasts is anybody's best guess. Uh, I suppose the doomsday prophets would tell you the bubble is popped. That things are 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 not going to go back up, and then the more uh, uh, optimistic folks would say that that you know things are going to go back up, uh, and and you know then there's you got the middle ground I guess where it's always going to be kind of beholden to the personalities that you have. MMA will stay on its its current track, and every once in a while you're going to get a Brock Lesnar or a Ronda Rousey who's going to be able to kind of get you uh, on the mainstream media outlets. Um, but I would I would think if it doesn't go back up in in the next couple of years, then certainly it wouldn't be a surprise to get to see the current ownership group get out. Uh, and and then I guess you know whether or not that turns out to be good or bad depends on who would buy it and who indeed is even around who would want to buy it at this point. Because I think you got Viacom out there and 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 
sitting on a huge pile of cash. Five from billion in cash. It must be a really tall pile. From what we understand. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I don't even know if that ship has sailed, if they would still be interested in, in, in picking up the, the brand. I guess, you know, I, I heard people talking crazy at one point, like Fox would be interested in buying it, uh, which obviously financially makes sense, but opens up a completely different can of worms about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the appropriateness and, and, uh, uh, you know, loyalties and, and, uh, uh, you know, not that any of this has caused any trouble, has troubled anyone so far. No, uh, in, right in terms of it. like a conflict of interest. But, uh, I don't know, man. It's, it's, uh, a lot of the news has not been good <laughs> lately. Yeah, but I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to the opinion that just because some of the news has not been good lately, that means like we're on a downward trending line that can't possibly be reversed. I mean, I, I think that some of this, uh, it, it, in some ways, it seems like, Almost a testament to how awesome this sport can be that even with some of this crazy stuff that goes on, still, when you get a good fight card on there and you're tuning in on Saturday night, it still feels like there's no place you'd, you'd rather be and, and nothing else you'd rather be watching right then. So it still seems like this can be awesome. It just seems like maybe it's being stretched to to find out what the breaking point of right. it might be so that then we can figure out you know wh- where the realms that it exists in. I also think that... Maybe this is the the time where the UFC owners figure out that this whole thing of like global domi- domination, where you turn every living soul in the world into a a fan of bloody cage fighting, is maybe not going to happen. Maybe that's not realistic. Maybe it is always going to be a niche sport, uh, just because of what it is. And maybe that's okay. And maybe you can learn to work with that. Right. No, the product is good, and I think it has always been good, and and will probably continue to be good. I guess it's my question is whether or not the product is sustainable with the current spending habits of the dudes who run the sport next question comes to us from rusty from atlanta he writes it was a shame to hear about mayhem miller's recent breakdown this week not all surprising but still ashamed nonetheless it got me thinking about fighters mental health as someone who has bipolar disorder and participated in therapy sessions before do you really think that it would be for the best for the sport and benefit the fighters if they all go through psychological evaluations prior to signing their UFC contract. This could also weed out some of the problems of fighters of fighters past, such as domestic violence, neo-Nazi ties and other criminal activities. I think of guys like Will Chope, Tiago Silva and others who have had issues with those, with their actions uh, prior to signing with the UFC. What are your thoughts? Discuss. Thank you. And happy Columbus day. Wow. Okay, man. The mayhem Miller thing. That that's that's a damn bummer, man. Yeah, it, it is because I think as we rode in the Breakfast of Champions this week, we remember when Mayhem Miller was just like funny crazy and not police standoff crazy, and to watch a guy who was uh, at one time regarded as like a fairly intelligent, fairly thoughtful uh, MMA fighter, g- g- like slip to this point where he's live tweeting his own arrest and like standoff with the police. It is uh, disheartening, man, and it's it's a bummer to watch happen in such a public way. Yeah, and it's a, it's hard as a, an MMA fan for a long time. I think everybody can't resist the urge to sit back and say, what's the cause and effect here? Was Mayhem Miller kind of this guy who was always uh, walking a razor's edge and, and he slipped off of it and, you know, what's going on with him right now has nothing to do with MMA or... 
you know, that maybe getting hit in the head a bunch uh, as a part of as a condition of his employment, maybe not really help out whatever was already going on with him, that kind of stuff. Did he get into the sport because he was a, a wild man to begin with? I mean, it's hard to, to answer some of those questions, and I, I think it's it brings up like a difficult thing where it leads you to be speculating on uh, what exactly is going on in the heads of uh, some some thirty year old dudes who or thirty something year old dudes who, who I don't know, man. If that if that is a if stuff that is happening with some of those guys is a result of head trauma in MMA at at this age, damn, that's frightening. That's, that's I I. I don't really believe that. Right. I, think it's, I think it's hard to, to point that out. But it also does make you wonder. Uh, I mean, again, we, we hear all this stuff, you know, Dana White and then everybody else in the UFC will tell you how safe this is compared to other sports. But we just haven't seen a long enough timeline yet of the, the MMA lifers to know how this shit turns out. Right. We just don't know anything, I think, is the is the most is the truest thing you can possibly say. We don't know if the sport is safer than other sports. We know for a fact that. The rules of this combat sport were developed with fighter safety in mind, whereas that wasn't necessarily true of, of combat sports like boxing. So I think that you, that can be said in MMA's defense, but we just don't know. Uh, and our understanding of the brain and brain health are so rudimentary and still developing at this point that it's impossible to say, uh, one way or another. I know that, that, uh, when Ben Roethlisberger was was being accused of various transgressions, that there were a lot of brain scientists saying that that you know trauma to the front of the skull and frontal lobe trauma uh, is known to reduce impulse control and affect people in 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 that regard. But it like all is saying all, any and all of that stuff about MMA fighters when we don't really have any scientific evidence to back it up is is irresponsible, frankly. And like I guess if they did a bunch of brain studies and it turned out that that was true. I don't think anybody would be surprised per se. I mean, they are doing a brain study, that ongoing study right. at the, the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, but until we have results to like back up those theories, like I don't know that that uh, that that we can you know paint with such a broad brush, and especially when it comes to like a specific example of one specific guy. That's that's one of the things that feels irresponsible to me. But like we said at the top. Uh, it is super sad to watch uh, uh, Mayhem Miller go out like that. The next question comes from Ben Lloyd. He writes, Wait, which, isn't it my turn to ask a question? Oh, yeah. Now? Sorry, man. Yeah. And sorry to Ben Lloyd. You're going to have to wait a couple more minutes. Yeah. But that's a good teaser for him, man. He knows coming it's up coming up after now. the break, Ben Lloyd. <laughs> go ask your question. Is it, I thought you were doing a break. No, we don't, we don't do breaks. We're just going to do all questions well, asked the whole it. time. Right. That was just, I was making a radio joke there. Yeah, it was hilarious, clearly. A teaser. Uh, this one is from Victor Opria, who writes, Greetings from Romania! Oh! Anyways, Opa. recently there... Oh, isn't that Greek or something? Who cares, man? There's, recently there has been a dramatic increase in the mediatization of Brazilian jiu-jitsu with Metamoris and now the Eddie Bravo Invitational. How do you feel this is going to turn out? I was listening to an interview with Bravo, and he said something along the lines of, The submission-only format will help us compete with MMA. Does BJJ have the slightest chance of going mainstream no nope next question no in fact uh this shit was super popular at the turn of the 20th century american catch wrestling legitimate professional wrestling oh man uh, you know what i'm gonna do is write a novel about that yeah, that sounds like a great somebody idea. on this podcast already did that uh and you know what people got bored of it and then uh some way or another no one's quite exactly sure how uh they decided to start faking that shit to make it more exciting 
and mm. make more money doing it. So I think that it's awesome that within the last couple decades, you've seen this kind of renaissance of catch wrestling and, uh, grappling tournaments. And I feel like with Metamorris and, uh, and sport jujitsu and stuff like that, it's kind of, it feels like it's never been more popular to me at least. And maybe that's just because other people are, are providing more coverage of it than they have before. But I think that you are never going to reach anything more with than a niche audience with that because you have to really like grappling to like it. And even then shit is pretty dry sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that benefits it is just technology that you don't have to convince somebody to put it on TV anymore the way yeah. you would have, uh, and and so that's that's one thing that I think increases the the mediatization feel of it that it feels like it's getting more popular. But I think one thing that uh, jujitsu and like grappling arts have is like you said, it's kind of a niche thing. You you if you are into watching it, like if you're watching all the Men and Morrises and Eddie Bravo Invitational and all that stuff, chances are you are a participant. You are a yeah. practitioner of it. Um, and that is one thing that I think it does have over MMA is that there are probably a lot more people who can just recreationally take up jujitsu. You can be like a 40 year old white belt at jujitsu and it's okay. And it's a good way to go blow off steam after work at the end of the day or something like that. And you can get into it that way. Whereas with MMA where you're punching and kicking each other in the head, um, a lot fewer people, I think doing that just kind of for fun. Uh, you know, there definitely are those people, but I think that you see w way more potential for people to get into that with jujitsu and then from there become interested in watching the, the, the all stars play. Um, but still, that's, it's a niche within a niche. Those Metamorris video promos are awesome. They do do a really good job with Whoever that. Whoever does those should is, should be getting paid a lot of money, probably by somebody else. Uh, the next question comes from Ben Lloyd. Which four fighters go on your MMA Mount Rushmore? Now, see, this is an interesting one because are we talking greatest of all time or are we talking personal favorites? Because if you go greatest of all time, I think you got to go Fedor, okay. GSP, Anderson Silva, John Jones. John Jones already, huh? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you, when you think about the glamour division, light heavyweight, he's certainly the best light heavyweight, right? Yeah, I guess I can't really argue with that. I mean, Chuck Liddell is going to be making his Chuck face somewhere right now and in a, I think in a bar with guys, his shirt off. Both the guys recording this podcast know that there's no way in the blue hell that Chuck Liddell ever turns up on a Chad Dundas Mount Rushmore of MMA. <laughs> you know, you you do bring up a good question, though, because I've seen a lot of people's version of the, the Mount Rushmore – uh, where they'll put Hoist Gracie on there, mm -hmm. you know, Bellator's Hoist Gracie, Bellator, <laughs> Bellator brand ambassador, uh, Hoist Gracie, just because of the kind of like as a, a nod to the beginnings kind of way. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you look at the actual Mount Rushmore and you're like, Teddy Roosevelt, huh? The fuck? Like, so I don't know. Maybe everybody gets one of those on their Mount Rushmore's. I don't know. I guess I can't really argue with yours as far as a greatest you, dude. You, you can say your own if you've got one. I mean, the only one I feel like I would want to argue with is it seems pretty early to be putting John Jones's face into a mountain. Uh, but All right, well, let's take John Jones off. Who do you, who do you put on there? Randall? I'm sorry? Randall Couture? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't... Shit, it's tough, man. Lesnar? It's a tough one. I mean, no. you wouldn't put Lesnar on there, No, right? I wouldn't. I would not do that. Uh, uh, Matt Hughes? You know, I see, I was going to say Matt Hughes, and there was a time where I would have said Matt Hughes in a heartbeat. Yeah. But A, he's been eclipsed by GSP as far as just like welterweight accomplishments, and the more we got to know Matt Hughes, the harder it was to like Matt Hughes, I found. Yeah, and then you got two welterweights up on the mountain, that's, which that's, is going to make the other weight classes jealous. BJ Penn? 
Uh, see, I would go John Jones before I went BJ Penn, but that's yeah. just me. And I mean, I have to admit that if I were objecting to the John Jones thing, I would only be doing so because it seems too early. I would also, though, have to admit that if he continues apace or even falls off a little bit, uh, he'd still go down as like the greatest light heavyweight. So you'd kind of have to give that one. Well, you know what? If he falls off, we'll take the dynamite up there, blow his face off, put somebody else's face up there. That's distasteful. That's what that is. We'll do Dan Henderson so we don't even need to cut him to the rock too much. <laughs> That's in poor taste. Just really poor taste. Uh, is it my turn now? Yeah. Uh, okay. Speaking of Matt Hughes, from Kyle Resnick, he asks, I used to be a quote-unquote casual MMA fan. It wasn't until the second Matt Hughes versus Frank Trigg fight that the sport stole my soul for all eternity. I'm wondering, was there any definitive moment or fight that piqued your interest in the sport? This one, Kyle Resnick, has something in common with my father, who uh, was always really suspicious of MMA and uh, would always tell me how, you know, boxing, that was... That was the sweet science, and that was the the real shit. And then one day, uh, when I showed him, took out my laptop home from grad school, I believe it was, and showed him Matt Hughes and Frank Trigg. Uh, and when he saw that one, he thought, okay, that is kind of awesome. Uh, and then he started watching more. Uh, so that was the one for your dad. How about you? Since your dad's not on this show yet. <laughs> I would say uh, Tito Ortiz and Frank Shamrock. That was the, the fight where... The first one I remember where it was like, okay, everything's kind of being put together and we're seeing a new, it's not like one fighting style against another so much. We're seeing a new thing kind of crawl out of the primordial ooze. Yeah. And, and I remember watching that one and thinking, wait a minute, something new is happening here. Uh, and from that point on, I, I was a major fan. Yeah, I'm going to go with two. The first one. Oh, uh, come on. Two? The, the, the entry of Mark Coleman. Uh, what was it? UFC 10, I think he came out, won the tournament and fought Don Fry in the final. Uh, and watching him fight Don Fry was one of those, I think, like you just said, it was one of those touchstone moments where it was like, oh, okay, people are getting serious about this shit now. Like, you aren't just going to show up in your pajamas and triangle choke somebody because they don't know what that is. Like, these dudes. <laughs> the good are, old days. Yeah. Like, these, these dudes are getting serious. And also, maybe it would be a good idea for us to have weight classes because when 250 pound Mark Coleman is just ragdolling, then 215 pound Don Fry, like, it ain't no thing in the final of that tournament uh that that just wasn't fair uh and the second one for me is going to be randy couture beating up vitor belfort at uh ufc 15 i believe uh because that was the one, first time the first time yeah that because that was the one where uh they they put up on the screen that yes. vitor belfort had no known weaknesses yes i love that so uh, much and vitor belfort had been destroying people up to that point and randy couture went out there uh with really no mma training that you know without very much i think he would tell you he was very much still a wrestler at that point uh and just kind of grounded out against vitor belfort and laid out a blueprint to beat vitor belfort that existed from that point up until the trt vitor belfort showed up last year uh so i'm gonna go with that one because that was another one where just kind of a blew my doors off and b i was like okay like now we've we've really reached the point where there's like serious strategy and and like game planning involved in this i felt like it was an important milestone in, in the actual like sportification of the spectacle i guess you could say plus i mean you have to admit that randy couture looked pretty awesome going out there and like you know farmer's tan looking like the most pacific northwest tough yes. guy ever like if you were you might go to your prom date's house and ring the doorbell and randy couture could answer it and be like i need her home by midnight and you would have her home by eleven thirty because that <laughs> right. was a scary scary dad yes your turn okay next question comes from 
Kyle from Maine. Oh, this guy's going to look like a jerk. Serious question. Does John Morgan only have one shirt? I have never seen him in anything other than the light blue polo. So, Ben, you did some reportage today. Yeah. Uh, we already knew the answer to this question, but you went to the source just to just to find out a few more details. Uh, why don't you tell us all why John Morgan always wears a light blue shirt on television and why Kyle from Maine maybe didn't know it, but but like he kind of stepped in a in some dog shit. Kind here. of about to feel like an asshole right now. Yeah. Well, uh, I emailed John and I kind of knew the, the outline of the, the story about why he always wears the blue shirt. Um, told him I'll just let him answer it. So here is his response uh, via email. So if people want to know, here's the deal. The first night I ever wore that blue shirt to a fight, my wife texted me a picture of my infant son touching the TV where he saw me sitting cage side. At that moment, I decided that would be my fight night shirt, and I bought a few more of the same color. Since I'm on the road quite a bit, which is an understatement. Understatement of the year. Editorial right note here. Um, wearing the blue shirt allows my wife and son to be able to quickly find me on the UFC broadcast, and my son can know where I am and that I'll be coming home the next day after the fights. As a side note, my wife bought me a ridiculously bright yellow shirt for my son's second birthday party, which had a Despicable Me theme. I didn't think I'd ever have a reason to wear it again until I was packing a bag for the Arlovsky Bigfoot fight in Brasilia in September. Suddenly dawned on me that there was only one place where a bright yellow shirt made perfect sense, Brazil. So I wore the yellow shirt that night, and I'll be wearing it again next week in Rio. Bottom line, I spend a lot of time away from my wife and son, and anything that can help me feel connected to them on the road, not to mention hopefully help them feel connected with me, I'm going to do. Wow. See? So now, like, everyone's dabbing their eyes. we got yeah. a real tearjerker on our hands. And seriously, John Morgan does spend a lot of time on the road. Uh, he's our, our, our go-to guy uh, for a lot of these. And it's, you know, I'm sure everybody out there thinks that the job of MMA journalist is super easy. And for the most part, they're right. <laughs> uh, but when you have to go and cover those events, especially, you know, do all the fight week stuff, um, do all the fight night stuff, which means you're up pretty much all night and then catch a super early plane back, especially if you're going to like somewhere like, you know, one of those smaller towns in Brazil, like Belo Horizonte or something where, you know, John goes from Vegas, you got to take like three planes and a bus to get there, uh, and then do it all to come back and then, you know, fly all night and through however long it takes and get back and then immediately be plunged back into your family life where your wife is probably wishing you to come over here and watch the, the baby for a little while. You know, that that stuff does take a toll on you for a little while. So, uh, yeah, can't really blame the guy for trying to find something to to make it feel not so hard. I know my my wife would murder me if I had to be on the road that much. So the, the Morgan family. Uh, I assume they're, that they're partying these this week and, and last week. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Either that or his wife just like let him in the house, handed him a broom, and then now she's been gone for two weeks. That's right. See, that's what would happen if I if I had to do that stuff. As soon as I came home, my wife would immediately go on like a six-day vacation. All right, what's your next question over there? This uh, is you. This one comes from uh, Corey Weichard, who writes, Josh Peter recently published a great article on MMA Junkie, it was actually from USA Today, uh, about the UFC's anti-piracy effort. I'm sure that some small percentage of MMA fans exclusively watch the sport through pirated videos, but I imagine that a much greater percentage of fans pay for some events and use pirated video for others. Since the UFC has spread its product across multiple paid platforms, it is now more expensive than ever to be a UFC fan. 
I'd run the numbers, and it would cost me about $120 a month to get access to Fox Sports 1, Fox Sports 2, Fight Pass, and to split the cost of pay-per-views with a few friends. Do you guys think that piracy is wholly bad for the UFC, or does it help to sustain a certain segment of the fan base that might otherwise lose interest in the sport? Aren't some forms of piracy, such as when fight videos are uploaded a few days after an event has taken place, useful for holding on to fans that regularly spend money on the sport, but who aren't willing to spend as much as the UFC is asking them to? Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could also make the uh, the old school music industry argument that like, uh, if someone pirates your 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 record and and puts it on a CD or or even further back a cassette tape mm-hmm. uh, and gives taping it, it off the radio gives it to gives a seventeen year old girl that they've yeah. got a crush on uh, like how'd that work out by the way I married her we're married okay nice. Uh, that that's maybe not all the way bad for the for the musical band that you ripped off because while you didn't maybe go out and buy their their recorded piece of music maybe the person that you gave it to turned into a fan and did uh and i think that that sometimes tell to gutter mouth now and they're wishing they had that that 17 bucks <laughs> i think that that doubles for the for the ufc and and fight shows sometimes like uh I imagine that there's a lot of people out there who are UFC fans who probably didn't pay for their first UFC experience one way or another. Yeah. Uh, but that's probably going to ring hollow to the guys who own the company. Right, especially who are having the the financial problems that we discussed earlier. You know, I, that is an interesting the way of looking at it. I mean, I don't blame the UFC at all for taking these efforts to go after the people who are actually doing the pirating and the distributing of it. Uh I thought it was a bad idea when they were kind of getting a little more aggressive, saying that they were going to go after everybody who has viewed a pirated stream. Uh, for one, I don't even know how that would work out legally, uh, but that does seem like, you know, hey man, if you're going after somebody who is like, they're a 19-year-old kid in a college dorm room somewhere, they can't even, you know, maybe even can't physically buy the pay-per-view uh, with their situation, whatever TV setup they have, they have an opportunity to... Uh, you know, they hear about some pirated website where they can watch the stream. Maybe they do that, and then when they get out of college and they have a job, and they're a fan. You know, they've been watching the sport for years, and they're going to buy every pay-per-view you have. And if you go after somebody like that, uh, then, yeah, you do drive people away. I mean, I think that maybe the the thing here is that the UFC seems like really touchy about any kind of form. Like, we've seen them kind of try and crack down on GIFs. Uh, of like fight finishes or something or you'll see like the video highlights that all the sites have where they don't actually have the ending of the fight that kind of stuff I mean I feel like in those areas the UFC is making a, a mistake like it's being so aggressive to keep anybody from seeing anything that happened at the event if they didn't pay for it that then the effect in the end is basically to let people to keep people from finding out anything like from seeing the kind of thing that might make them go wait a minute, I need to buy this shit the next time there's one on. When's the next one? Right. You know, like that kind of stuff can actually really help you. Or like, you know, if you buy the, the pay-per-view uh, and, you know, with boxing, if you, if they had the pay-per-view one weekend, you know, they get what money they can out of it and they realize that by the next weekend, we're going to give that shit away. We're just going to put it up on HBO or whatever. Uh, and it seems like the UFC could benefit from a little bit more uh, lax approach in that respect. The next question comes from Kyle Watson. He writes, it seems that the UFC is slowly shifting away from a meritocracy and toward prize fighting. Examples of this include Dominic Cruz and Conor McGregor leapfrogging over other contenders by calling out the champ. Do you think this trend will continue or will the UFC still primarily award title shots based on merit? First of all, when it comes to Dominic Cruz, shut your mouth. That's the champion you're talking about. Chad will not tolerate you talking that way about Dominic Cruz. 
Well, we could talk about Conor McGregor, and I think that you made a, a really valid point in favor of Conor McGregor getting uh, an, a, a, a more or less a media title shot well, last week or two weeks ago, whenever we talked about it. Um, the one where you argued with me, that one? Yes. Okay. And we'll gladly do it again. Uh, although, and, and let's, let's, let's be clear that this, this is not necessarily a new trend. I feel like that, that this stuff like used to happen quite a bit, but it was just a situation where there was, you know, less attention being paid to who was getting title shots and stuff like that. I already brought this up earlier in the show, but like, you know, at one point though, it was never explicitly stated. If you were a UFC fan, you sort of knew that the UFC was going to keep serving Chuck Liddell light heavyweight title shots until he won one, because it was obvious that he was their guy and the guy that they, uh, uh, thought was the, the guy who was going to be the biggest mainstream star. Um, and, and so like, you know, this is not necessarily a new approach. And if you are the company that's responsible for making money off this shit, I think it's understandable at times. Yeah, it is. And I don't know. I mean, the, I feel like we are kind of a part of the narrative and in, in this kind of thing where we all love to complain about this kind of stuff, but you're not going to tell me that if Conor McGregor gets in there on a title shot, that all these people who are like, I think it's bullshit that he would be uh, fast tracked for this kind of thing. Um, you're not going to tell me that those people won't watch it. I mean, I think that that's kind of part of the, the carnival that is MMA is that right. like the, the, the certain amount of complaining about who deserves what and who gets what. I mean, it's not like a situation like a Gina Carano, Ronda Rousey thing where, Man, this isn't even a real fight. It's not one of those people isn't even a fighter anymore. We know you're just doing it for a cash grab. You're basically saying like, well, this guy got a title shot, maybe one fight or two fights sooner than I thought uh, he should. I don't know. I mean, that's part of it. That's that's part of the things that we love to argue about. But I, I think that those kind of decisions are are defensible. I, I don't I don't get too up in arms about that. And I think that we like to complain about stuff like that. Yeah, uh, to me, it just gets frustrating that we continually do this over and over again, where I feel like in the case of Conor McGregor, like a large portion of the, the maybe not a large portion, but a certain segment of the fan population, maybe that population that lives in the fictional nation of Ireland, uh, has decided that he's awesome and amazing, and we're going to stick him straight in a title shot, and he's the, the next big thing and the greatest thing for, since sliced bread we still have not seen him fight a wrestler. Like that's the thing that bothers me. I feel like we do this over and over again where we like build these guys up, put them on a pedestal when we still haven't seen a complete picture of them. And then it turns out, Oh wait, actually this guy does have a flaw and then we see him lose. And then the, the further aggravating thing is that as soon as that happens the next day, everyone's like, God, I can't believe anybody ever thought he was good. Yeah. You know, like what a joke. But I mean, that is like the, to me still one of the best parts about, fight sports is the let's find out aspect of it. Uh, and that's one of those situations where either way we're going to find out, we're going to, we're going to learn whether, uh, you know, he had a fatal flaw that just hadn't been exposed yet, or whether these people in the fictional nation of Ireland are right. And he is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that's to me, like the real appeal is like, all right, we have these questions. We have people on both sides of the question. Let's find out. Uh, so I've got no problem with that. Either way, somebody's going to be sad and somebody's going to be happy afterwards. Uh, here's a question from Chase McGeary. He writes, I'm confident that Kung Lee's failed drug test following UFC Fight Night 48 is a result of him taking PEDs and not anomalies associated with the bizarre treatment of his blood. But I love a good loophole, and this one looks big enough to fit Cain Velasquez's truck through. Even if the UFC upholds its suspension, the questions raised surrounding the blood work allow Kung Lee the ability to deny wrongdoing, and to be honest, keeps me from fully condemning him. 
Point is, isn't there a way to further validate the test results after the fact? I haven't seen Bisping's numbers. I assume his blood was similarly mistreated. Can we see a side-by-side -side of Bisping and Lee's results, maybe compared to the blood of an average adult male? Chad? I guess you're the average adult male. Uh, I know every person is unique in their chemistry, but I think a relative comparison is important to see exactly what happened at UFC Fight Night 48 and expose Kung Lee for what he did. Cheat. What say you? That's a good email. That was well done by... Who wrote that? That would be Chase McGeary. Chase who McGeary. refers to you as the average adult male. <laughs> Thanks, Put that Chase. on your business cards, Thank you. Chad. Thank you, Chase. Uh, yeah, I think that one of the points that needs to be made about this whole Kung Lee thing is that the idea that Kung Lee may have been using human growth hormone to try to obtain a, an advantage and that the UFC mishandled his blood sample by sending it to a lab that was not uh, accredited by the World Anti-Doping Agency are not mutually exclusive. No. Both those things could be true. And and uh, I think if we're strictly talking about Occam's razor, uh, they both probably are true. But like, that's not the larger point, as I think Chase McGeary points out, of this situation, right? Like, right. the larger point is, uh, it was kind of categorically proved to us that maybe we shouldn't trust this fight company to run its own drug testing because uh, mistakes were made. Mistakes were definitely made. It would be interesting to see what Bisping's uh numbers were just for the sake of a side a side comparison but that wouldn't necessarily tell us everything we need to know even just comparing those two uh, because you know like they said there's a lot of things that can make your hgh levels fluctuate maybe getting a bone broken in your face is one of those things you know kung lee took a hell of a beating so uh it wouldn't be based on you know some of the stuff that i've read in light of this it wouldn't be totally uh out of the question for the body to kind of pump up the HGH level production when you're suffering a whole hell of a lot of damage. But it would be, I mean, it would be interesting, but I think people are kind of missing the point on that one that, you know, the point is not that like this proves conclusively that Kung Lee didn't cheat in any way. What it proves is that the UFC didn't really catch him and that this system that they're using is not reliable and that we need something else. Uh, and hopefully this is the thing. This seems like a big enough screw up that enough people uh, seized on that it's going to make the UFC realize it needs to do something else. All right, I'm going to read this one, even though it's long and it doesn't seem to have a ton of punctuation. Uh, <laughs> from Brian Vijar. Hey, guys, I've been a longtime MMA fan, and I've had the awesome pleasure to see one of these fights live recently. And I've got to say that seeing the top two athletes, two top athletes try and beat the shit out of each other in inventive ways is both dramatic and terrifying. I've mostly convinced myself and others that my appreciation for this sport is entirely within an athletic contest, but that wouldn't cover that raw animal enjoyment of seeing the fight in person instantly stripped away that anonymous partition of the screen and reminded me that this is real violence, which can often result in a great deal of pain to its participants, both physically and psychologically. Isn't that just the teensy bit psychotic? What's really going on inside us MMA fans in particular that we are so satisfied witnessing brutal knockouts and wars of attrition? Also, af having seen so many events live, are either of you two still in awe of the spectacle of it? I wanted to read this email because it reinforces the point. While I ultimately think that mixed martial arts is better on television, uh, if you haven't seen it live at least once, you really ought to go because 
as this emailer suggests, it does really change your view on it. Like when you're there live and you see the whole thing and you really fully grasp how hard some of these people are getting punched in the face and like the speed of the athletes and you get to see the guys cry after they leave the cage and stuff like that. Like if you're into this sport, you should go check that out because uh, I don't know if it's going to change your opinion. I assume not. Like it doesn't, it, it's, it really only seems to reinforce it really. But like, you get a you get a much broader view and uh, uh, a much more I guess you would say intimate view of the sport if you spend the money to go see it live at least once or twice. You know that is a really good question too, and I think that one of the things that it reminds me of is that one of the, the thing that I like about the sport because I think it's wrong to say like oh we're psychotic and we like the violence because honestly I was noticing recently I don't know I saw the headlines of it but I purposely did not click this video. Video of like a rugby match where like a dude gets knocked out, like especially brutally during this rugby match or something. Same thing where you see like, oh, a street fight video where this guy gets knocked out. And I realized like, I don't really want to see that. Like, I don't want to see that, that, you know, this just terrible violence being done to people in those contexts. Uh, when it's a fight where we're both prepared, we both know what we're doing, we both know what can happen, what the stakes are, and we both show up to find out who's the better fighter. I feel like then, you know, the violence that is done to the loser is not the attraction for me, but it is the thing that reminds us all of the high stakes, uh, the the kind of just stripped bare value of, uh, you know, professional prize fighting kind of thing. And that that's what I like about it. It reminds me of, you remember when Kevin Canty, our, uh, our old fiction professor, uh, who had a story in uh, last week's New Yorker, I believe, by the way, um, good writer Kevin Canty, one of the things he used to say about the stakes, like what the stakes should be in fiction, was that nobody goes to see a tightrope walker if the tightrope is six inches off the ground. Uh, and that's kind of what MMA has made me feel about other sports sometimes. Like, you know, you watch a basketball game, they win, you lose, you're going to play again tomorrow night anyway, and got to hop the bus to Cleveland or whatever. Uh, and, you know, you don't really get that same just emotional charge out of any individual match or game. And with fighting, you know, there's no such thing. It's just a, you know, there's no preseason fight. Like, that. It, the stakes are so high physically and emotionally that that, to me, is one of the, the big parts of the appeal. Is the violence is kind of a, a byproduct of it in that sense or a re- reflection of it. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Well, Mr. Long Talker over here. Let's let's just move it along. We're almost okay. out of time. Okay. When, when I'm talking, it's a long talking. Um, it's long talking because you talk for a long time. Not you're talking right you're now. Talking. Are you done talking? You done talking? Okay. Read your damn question. <laughs> this is from Adrian Garcia. How much more dangerous is training for an MMA fight than actually fighting in an MMA fight? We know a shin can snap mid-fight, Spider Silva style, but how much damage do these fighters really take in camp? Knee injuries in MMA appear to be too common that people aren't questioning the training methods rather than the fighters, rather, or rather the fighters. 2012 was supposed to be the year of the injury, but it is now fall 2014, and that injury bug is back. Do you think MMA will ever be too unsafe on the knees to train regularly for a fight? Well, it does seem like the there could potentially be a better way to do this since a lot of people turn up with injuries prior to the fight. Um, in, just in terms of mental health and, and the damage that's wrought on your brain, I think that probably, uh, just like in football, much of that damage is also sustained in practice, uh, depending on how much you spar, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, 
that it seems like most of the damage that is actually done to your body is is done in training, right? Well, I think one of the big differences, or a lot of it anyway, a lot of it. But like one of the differences is if you get hurt in training, even just a little bit, you can stop. You know, like, and you see it if you go to these gyms. They'll be sparring or wrestling practice or something. Somebody will bang their knee and think, "Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me let me check this out a little bit." And with the fight, uh, people are more likely to you know break their hand and see if they can see what they can do. Uh, so I think that part is more dangerous and the part that they're really trying to hurt each other. Nobody's easing up or anything. Or, you know, if somebody catches you with a good shot when you're sparring uh, and they see a little bit wobbled, they're not rushing in there to try and finish you off the way they are in a fight. So those are some of the differences. I do think, though, as far as just a daily pounding kind of thing, uh, then the the toll adds up. I mean, imagine if a football game, if like there was only one football game every three months and they spent all that time preparing for it, like... People would probably get the shit beat out of them in practice pretty bad. All right, let's squeeze one more in. From Mike Morgan, he writes, I was wondering if you guys could spend a couple minutes talking about Dana White in a positive light. You guys do a great job of calling Dana out on his bullshit, but I wanted to hear you guys say some positive things about the guy. Being president of the UFC seems like an incredibly hard job, and while he's far from perfect, I think that Dana does not get enough respect for the job that he does. Um, yes, we can. I don't mind talking about Dana White in a positive light, although I would point out that emails like this once again reinforce to me a disconnect between myself and the mixed martial arts industry because I cannot fucking believe that anyone would ever in their right mind think that Dana White does not get enough respect for the job that he does since 70% of the stories that are written in our industry are like Dana White says X about Y is the headline and almost 100% of the mainstream media attention until very very recently was just ridiculously lavish and like ridiculously positive about him in particular. Not to mention how many fighters do you see who get to have snow imported to their driveway. So he's getting respect in the monetary form as well. But yeah, nice things. Uh, I think he's a tremendous fight promoter. Like, he runs the only up to this point really successful top-level mixed martial arts organization in the world. I think you can't really... Uh, underscore how much that means. Like, uh, just on a, on a, you, I think you can disagree with the UFC's methods a lot of the time, but like, uh, he does a tremendous job staying on message and just in terms of like his personal ability to go stand in front of a room full of reporters and promote a fight, uh, is maybe top five all time for I promoters. Th I think people think that's easier than it is. Yeah, it's super hard, man. Yeah, no, just look at some of the people who have tried it. I would, point out one of the things that Greg Jackson said to me when I was down there in Albuquerque and I mentioned something about, you know, his ongoing rift with Dana White, where Dana loves to take any excuse to, to take a shot at Greg Jackson. And Greg's remark was, you know, say what you want about Dana White. He has left the sport right now in a better condition than he found it. And that's true. You know, like the, the sport is better off now than it was before Dana White became president of the UFC. So you got to give the man his due daps for that. Yep, and he's better off too. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air, for, uh, air to us, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, co-main event, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. I think that went well. If you hadn't talked so long, I think we might have got some more in. Yeah, this is actually really easy. We should just do this every week. So much less work than trying to think of stuff to say. And we don't even have to watch the fights.